0: Well, good morning, church. You know, every single person has a desire for community. Every single person desires to be loved. They desire to be encouraged. They desire to be supported. This week, I was talking to my, uh, my oldest son, Harrison, and he was telling me that uh, he really misses football. He, he played football from first grade all the way to uh, 12th grade. And uh, he said, Dad, just right out of the blue, he said, Dad, I really miss football. And I said, well, son, what do you, what do you miss the most about it? And uh, it was surprising to me because he said, I really miss my friends. I really, I really miss my teammates. I really miss community. And, you know, as a sports fanatic myself, I, I'll read a lot about uh, sports figures, especially guys that have retired from professional sports, Uh, In basketball, baseball, football, it doesn't matter what what sport. And it's interesting because oftentimes those guys that have retired will be asked, what do you miss the most about your career? You know, did you miss the competition? Do you miss the spotlight and being on the national stage and the pressure? Do you miss the money? What what do you miss? And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, that athlete, that former athlete will say, I miss the locker room. I miss my teammates. And I think it really says something about all of us, doesn't it? It says something about the human condition, that we're really made for each other, that we're really made for community, that we long to have someone in our life cheer for us, be with us, and to be for us. We have that need. We desire it in our neighborhood. We long for it in our families. Uh, we we, we want to have a work environment that's, that's encouraging and supporting. We, we want that. We long for that. We want it in our nation. And sadly, it's really missing in and even in our nation today. I was reading, uh, I was reading about a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. And uh, Anthony Ray Hinton uh, wrote a book that really details his 28 years that he spent in a prison in the state of Alabama on death row for a crime that he didn't commit. And he shares, he details in the book. Uh, a, a portion of the book he talks about the the community that he helped cultivate with the other mi- inmates on death row, and he talks about the fact that in the death row suite where they housed the death row inmates right adjacent to it is the executioner 's room and so what they would do is the the guards would come and they would they would pick up a uh, an inmate and lead him away to be executed and, and Anthony Ray Hinton said over 28 years, he said 56 of my friends got executed. And he said every single time we did the same thing. He said they would, they would pick the prisoner up from their cell, they would march them to the execution room, and all the other prisoners would grab something metal. They would grab a cup or a tray from a meal, and they would immediately start making all this noise on the iron steel uh, bars in their, in their jail cell door. And they wouldn't stop. And they kept doing it all the way until the execution was completed. Because it was their way of saying, we're with you. We want you to know that you matter to us. We want you to know that we stand with you as you get ready and go through this. And we're with you all the way to the end. Really, what that is, is a picture of beautiful community, isn't it? Even, even among prisoners on death row. You know, that's exactly what Jesus has called the church to be, isn't it? Jesus has called the church to be a beautiful community. That's that's what we are to be. And so the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians because he's trying to help these Philippian Christians get back to community because they've been struggling with it. They're really struggling loving each other. They're really struggling getting along with each other. And So what the Apostle Paul wants to do is he wants to kind of correct some of some of the dysfunction that was happening in their church. And you, and you really see it throughout the entire letter. So in chapter 1, for example, and we even talked about this last week. The Apostle Paul really challenged them. He said, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. I, I, want you to, I want you to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because in reality, they weren't striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They weren't getting along. They were in each other's face. They were arguing and complaining and backbiting one another. And then in chapter 2, the apostle Paul urges them to, you know, to stop complaining, stop grumbling, and stop disputing with one another because he had heard reports that that's what what they were doing. And then in chapter 4, interestingly enough, he calls out two ladies in the church because they're not getting along with each other. Now, you guys, what they would do is they would, the entire church would gather together on a Sunday just like this. And they would read that letter out right in front of everybody. And the apostle Paul is, is, is calling out um, these two ladies. And, and it just is, it's just an amazing thing. He's like, I want these two ladies, uh, Iodia and Syntyche, I want you guys to quit fighting for crying out loud. Now, can I just say something parenthetical to that? Um, in the early church, you got to be careful with your sin because your sin can make it in Scripture. You know what I'm saying? Like these two ladies are in heaven going like, what did we do? That's so dumb. And now they've got to read about us for 2,000 years. So uh, got to be careful about that. So here's what I want you to do today. I want you to grab a Bible and I want you to read the Scripture with me this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2. We're going to look at a beautiful passage of Scripture that I believe describes the heart of what beautiful community is really is all about. This is one of the most breathtaking passages in all of Scripture. We're going to read the first um, 11 verses, and I think what we're going to see in this passage this morning is we're going to see just three very simple things. We're going to see what kills community, and then we're going to see what builds community, and then we're going to see where it comes from, okay? So so I'm I'm going to invite you because God has revealed himself to us If you're willing and able, would you stand together as we read the Word of God this morning? So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful in correcting and reproving and teaching And training in righteousness. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So, as I look at this passage this week, I was thinking, you know, what is really the point? What's he really trying to say? And what what he's really talking about here is he's talking about what we need to do to cultivate and build this beautiful community. And it's interesting because the starting point for him is Jesus. Do you notice that? Like he's got this breathtaking passage of scripture. It's almost uh, certainly poetic, the last half of it. Uh, but it's interesting, he sandwiches uh, this exhortation to community uh, right between Christ. He's got, he starts with Christ and, and he ends the passage with Christ. And then he challenges us uh, to have this mind among ourselves, which is Christ Jesus. Now, I think this is significant for us because I think what he's saying is that the secret to building community, the secret to healthy relationships is Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what he's pointing us to. That the secret to a healthy marriage, the secret to a great friendship, the secret to a strong, beautiful community in church is Jesus. And he draws our attention to how Jesus has worked in our lives. And he says, you know, do you have any comfort from being in Christ? Do you have any encouragement from his love? You know, have you, do you have the participation of the Spirit? In other words, I want you to think about how the love of God has worked in your life. I want you to think about the gift of grace that God has given to you. And what I want you to do is I want you to transfer that love and grace in, in how you relate to other people. It's really amazing what he's saying here. He's saying that the key to beautiful community comes and flows out of the work of Christ in our own lives. That the secret to healthy relationships comes right from the grace and the mercy of God as shown to us through Christ. And then he brings us to really this whole issue of what kills community. Let me set it up by showing it to you in verse, in verse 2. He says, I want you to complete my joy by being of the same, the same mind and having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. So really what he's, what, he's, what he's acknowledging there is you guys aren't one in heart. You're not of one mind. You know, you're not of one love. And we need to address that. And then he, he goes on to address it. Notice, notice what he says in verse three. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. All right, now he's starting to really cut close to home. Now, who is it that you can think of that was guilty of selfish ambition before the beginning of the world? Who was that? It was Satan. And Satan originally, uh, as Lucifer, an angel of God, was, was in, in the presence of God. And, and the angel desired God's, God's place and position. He wanted to usurp God's authority and God's place and have that for himself. And so as a result, God expelled him from heaven. And as a result of that, Satan dedicated himself to hurting God. And the way that he does it is by coming after his children. And that is exactly, that's exactly what what Satan did. He went after Adam and Eve. And what did he tempt them with? The very same thing, selfish ambition. God had told them, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except this one tree. You can't eat of that tree. And Satan came and questioned the character of God. And basically said to Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. You need to take it for yourself. He knows that you're going to be like him, and you need to realize, you need to realize your, your your potential. And so they gave in to the temptation. They took it hook, line, and sinker. And then he says this: He says, "Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit." You notice that word conceit. Some translations will translate it vain conceit. All right. So that word conceit is a Greek word that is really a compound word. So it's two words joined together. It has a range of meanings to it. One of those meanings is glory hunger, interestingly enough. So it's like the Apostle Paul is saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of a hunger for glory. Now let's, let's drill down on that just a little bit, because I think what he's talking about here is absolutely what kills community. This hunger for glory that is a part of the human condition. This hunger for glory, this, this glory-starved condition that characterizes me, and it characterizes you, and it characterizes all of, all of humankind. Now you're saying, Scott, how do you, how do you know that, that that characterizes all of humankind? Well, let me tell you, I think it's as natural as breathing for us, this glory starved condition. And you're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, when you look at a a group picture that you're in, okay, your first time you've seen a group picture that you're in this picture, who do you look at first in the picture every single time? Yeah, you look at yourself, right? And, And so, and so you're not really thinking about anybody else. You're just thinking about how you look. And so you determine the quality of the picture based on what? How you look. And if you look good and everybody else looks like an idiot, like that's a great picture right there, let me tell you. And we're all like that, right? That's, that's just how we think about it. And so we have this glory ache within us. We have this longing within us. And so then we ask Well, where did this come from? Like, why are we so starved for glory? And I think the answer is this. uh, Because like Adam and Eve, we rejected God. We rejected his love. We disobeyed his commandments. We chose what we wanted over what God wanted. And what happened is this rejection of God left a huge chasm In your heart and in mine, it left a huge void in us that something is broken and it set us on a course to fill that void in our life with anything that we can find that will promise to come close to filling it. What's interesting about that though is we were created, we were made in the image of God to actually be enjoyed by God. We were made, we were planned for his pleasure And and Genesis, interestingly enough, talks about how Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of day. And what this tells us, church, is that you and I were made to walk with God. We were made to know God and to experience his love, to experience his presence and his power in our life every day, that we would know the delight and smile of God in our life. That's our purpose. That's why we are here Think about how a parent would watch their six-year-old son or daughter play soccer. How will that six-year-old usually play soccer? Well, they're out in the middle of the soccer match, you know, picking the grass, picking their nose, and uh, looking all around, and they might even figure out to kick the ball. They might even kick the ball in the wrong net. How does the parent view all of that? Oh, look at my child. Isn't he gorgeous? Isn't he great? You know, isn't she beautiful? We love that. And so we look at the love that a parent has for their child, and we are marvelled at it. But we don't realize that that's a marker for the love of God for the love of His His kids. We don't have any. We we don't see that. But that is that is exactly what it is. It's a reflection of God's love for us. But here's the problem, church: we divorced God. We divorced Him. And so many people grow up with the trauma of being abandoned by their earthly father. But in this case, our heavenly father never abandoned us. We abandoned him. We turned our back on him. We rejected his love. We, we rejected the invitation of his companionship and his friendship. And what, what that resulted in is a glory ache that is in all of us because we have believed the lie that we can find love and we can find community outside of a relationship with God. That we can find glory away and detached from God. We'll establish our own glory. Thank you very much. That's what we say. And so, in the absence of our Father's love flowing into our life, we've been made incredibly insecure. And so the only way that that we can experience his love is by returning back to him. Because you see, only God can validate us. But we actually chased him away. Karl Marx was certainly not a Christian. I want you to look at what he said. He said, I'm nothing, but I must be everything. Man, the poor denuded creature must repress his smallness. You see, for... For a human race that's rejected God, that's salvation. Pretending you're not small and showing the world you're big. You know what that is? That's the glory ache. That's that, that's that void, that emptiness. It's the human condition. It's in me and it's in you. It's in all of us. And so we, we desperately try through our own human effort, our own pride, our own strength, our own wisdom, however you want to describe it, we, we desperately try to show the world we're big, that we're great. We don't need, we don't need anybody or anything else in our life. And so we look to so many different things to fill the void in our life. We, we do this in our relationships. We think, boy, if I could just have a boyfriend, if I could just have a girlfriend, man, then my life will be taken care of. Then the, then the void will be filled. And then we get married and we start looking to our spouse to fill the void. We start believing a lie that our spouse is supposed to, to salve that, that aching part of us and to fill the, the chasm in our life. Friends, I want to tell you, no spouse can do that. And what we're doing is we're putting so much pressure on them to do something they cannot do that we're making, making the marriage absolutely miserable. We're idolizing the marriage, if you will. And we try to fill the void with looking at, stuff on a computer screen that's not even real it's just pixels on a screen or we try to fill the void with food right things get a little stressful things get a little hard things get a little difficult and we run to Cheetos and chocolate milk and to make us feel a little bit better or we try to fill the void with work or success man if I can just show the world if I can just show my 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 work group that how how good I am and then they'll know then they'll know or we try to fill the void with our kids' success. Why else would parents pay someone to take the SAT for their kids so that they can get their kids into prestigious colleges and universities? It's the glory ache. You know, uh, Ellen DeGeneres is a woman who's so talented and gifted and funny and famous. And uh, you you know how people will wear the nicotine patch if they're they're trying to overcome an addiction to nicotine? And that patch will give them a little dose of nicotine to help them kind of ward off the temptation. It's interesting because Ellen said one day, she said, I wish I had an approval patch so that I can get regular doses of approval to deal with the constant ache I feel in my heart. She's just being brutally honest, isn't she? Because I think we've all felt that. You know, I know what it's like to be glory-starved, because I've battled it my entire life. It started young in South Alabama, thinking I could prove my way on the football field, and it started changing a little bit. But I was still pursuing it, even as I went to majored in Bible and went to seminary and started in the ministry. I thought I thought I could fill the void with ministry success. And then later on in years, you know, you, you, you start falling for this temptation of living vicariously through your kids. And trying to fill the void that way. And behind all of that is, for me, these voices. You don't measure up. You're not good enough. You don't know what you're doing. It's the glory void. It's the glory egg. Eh? Maybe you can relate to that. The truth of us, the truth is this, that the reason why the glory hunger is such a problem for community is because when I, when I start going down the thought processes of those thoughts that I'm no good and I don't measure up and I don't know what I'm doing. The reason why that kills community is who am I thinking about all the time when I'm thinking those thoughts? I'm not thinking about you. And I'm not thinking about God. Who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about me. And what happens with the glory hunger is it leaves me to become so self-absorbed, so self-focused that my eyes are blind to what's going on in the lives of people around me. Because all I see is what I need and what I want. And it causes us to turn inward and to turn selfish and to turn away from others. Now, one of the chief ways that we kind of numb ourselves to this glory hunger that's within us is we validate ourselves through just constantly being critical of other people. Just tearing people down the size everywhere we go. In our neighborhoods, in the school where our kids go and learn. State Road 135 at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, other drivers, right? referees, co-workers. And what is it? It's just a cheap way to lift myself up and to tear everybody else down. And you get a little bit of buzz from it. And we come back to it over and over and over again. And what it does is it destroys marriages, it destroys families, and it destroys churches. That's what it does. Now, the truth about this glory ache is we can't validate ourselves either. And there is a a load of literature in our world today that that's the gospel for them. Validate yourself, love yourself. And I just wanna challenge you, church, to be wary of messages where you're told you're meant to be the hero of your own story. Where you're told that you should be the first of your priorities. Where you're told you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and happy you are. You see, you see, those kind of messages advocate a self-love as the solution when in reality self-love and self-focus is the problem. You see, the truth of the gospel is this. Jesus is the hero of your story because without him you wouldn't even be here. The truth is to seek first the kingdom of God and let that be your priority, not some priority of yourself. And so that's what kills it, this selling out for self-approval and self-exaltation. Now, what builds it? Well, let me show you. Look at verse five. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who." Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he, he wasn't going to use his person, his place, his position for selfish gain. Okay, He wasn't going to do that. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness of men and being found in human form. Here it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And see, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this, that humility is the key to community. That humility is really the foundation of what beautiful community is all about. And Jesus gives us the picture of what this humility is. And so I think it works kind of like this. When when I'm glory starved, what I'm doing is I see other people as a means of getting what I want and what I think I I really need. So it puts me on on a posture of using other people for my own selfish purposes. That's what the glory hunger does. But when you're humble, what you've done is you've moved self out of the equation and you're filled up with God. You're filled up with the glory of God and the love of God. So you see others as a means of giving yourself away to them. Like you see others as people that you can bless and encourage and love them. And so when you're full of the glory of God and the love of God, you have these divine resources on which to draw where you can love someone unconditionally. You can love and bless them and pray for them. Why? Because it's not just you, but it's the power of God working through you. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about humility for sure. I mean, I think a lot of us think humility is kind of running yourself down or just thinking less of yourself or, you know, thinking that you're just kind of worthless. That's not really humility. I think, I think really humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. It's not running yourself down. It's building others up. It means you're trying to fill, fill someone else's tank with the overflow of God. In your tank. I love Pastor J.D. Greer. Uh, he was teaching his church this phrase and I thought I would just share it with you. He's, he says it like this. He says, uh, he says, in Christ, you can give up all that you have because in Christ, you have all that you need. I mean, just think about that. You, you know what that is, right? That's the gospel. That's grace. Like, in Christ, I can give up all that I have because in Christ, I have all that I need. That means that I'm, I'm free to be poor because I'm rich in Christ. I'm free to be overlooked now, because I'm cherished in Christ. I'm free to be a nobody because I'm somebody in Christ. I, I'm free, I'm free to be imperfect because Jesus was perfect for me. I'm free to be weak because Jesus is strong for me. You guys follow me? That's the gospel. It's the picture of of humility. And what it does is it sets us firmly in the satisfaction and in the security and the significance of God's grace in our life. And we can just rest. And the void is filled with the love of God. That's why he's talking about, do you have any encouragement from being in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? If that's what you have, then work that out in your relationships, in your marriage, in your parenting, and your, with your coworkers That's what he's talking about. I love reading about Nick Walenda. Nick, Nick Walenda is a high wire artist. He's a daredevil. Um, he crossed Niagara Falls in 2012 on a high wire in front of thousands of people. And then he did it over Grand Canyon uh, a year later. And uh, thousands of people there that watched him. Uh, do it. And what's interesting about Nick is he's a very strong Christian, and he talks about what he does after he does one of these stunts. Uh, he will go, and wherever the crowd was that gathered, the thousands of people that gathered to watch him do this, he'll go into that, into that space where the crowd was and just pick up trash, just pick up all the litter that basically he caused. And he said, what it does is it kind of grounds me. It helps me to be reminded that I'm not nearly as important in the eyes of the world as, as, I, uh, as I think that I am. You see, that kind of humility flows out of a security that is anchored in the love of his Savior. And I think what happens is when we as a church, when we as a group of Christ followers, when we begin walking in that security, when we begin realizing the significance of what God has done for us, then what, it, what does it produce? It produces something beautiful, doesn't it? It produces a beautiful community. This is who God wants us to be. Now, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, I've already really kind of alluded to it, but in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, what well, the Apostle Paul does is he describes kind of the, the impressive entire scope of Jesus' mission, where he was, what he did, and where he is today and he does it poetically, he does it beautifully and it's interesting because the passage reminds us that, that you know that Jesus is God that That Jesus has always been God. That Jesus is the ancient of days. That he was here before there was a here. John reminds us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and Jesus was with God in the beginning. It reminds us that Jesus was omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent, that he had all the character and and place of God because he is God. And yet what did Jesus do? He put on human flesh. He poured himself out, right? He became man. He became one of us. He didn't become a rich man. He didn't become an aristocratic man. He, he didn't become an important man. In fact, he never held political office. He never ruled on an earthly throne. He, he never commanded... You know, thousands of armies. He never even attended graduate school. He was poor. He was rejected. He was hated even from the time of his birth to the point where Herod heard of his birth and immediately dispatched soldiers to kill thousands of babies in the region just so he could take Jesus out. A few years later, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, the religious leaders began plotting to kill him immediately. Why? Because he was a threat to their religious power and their religious position. And you want to talk about downward mobility, this is, this is the picture of it. The king of kings taking on human flesh and becoming uh, you know, the least among us. And not only that, but allowing himself to be arrested, to be interrogated, to be tortured, to be crucified, and to be buried. And then on the third day, he allowed himself to be raised by the power of God the Father. And where is he now? He's ascended heaven where he sits and rules and righteousness and what paul reminds us is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus is lord and we will all be there and we will see it here's what i, will, I don't want you to miss what paul says is this that jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant he emptied himself Of certain divine attributes. He emptied himself. Get this. Of his glory. Get this. You and I are glory starved. You and I are glory hungry. We're empty. Jesus was full of glory. And what did Jesus do? He emptied himself of that glory. So that you and I would know the glory of the Father, the glory that we were made for. He emptied himself to a point where he allowed himself to be separated for the first time in all of eternity from his heavenly Father. He allowed himself to be ignored by his heavenly Father where Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He allowed himself to be overlooked and ignored so that you and I wouldn't have to be and why did he do that because he wanted you and i to experience and to know and to walk in his glory that's why he did it to fill the need in us we pushed god away god pushed jesus away and not us that is the gospel praise be to god jesus jesus gives up the affection And the affirmation of his father. And it goes to us as as Jesus takes on the wrath that we were deserving of. And so he died to form this beautiful community. He rose to make this beautiful community a reality. It's pretty incredible. So church, when you feel the glory ache, what do you do? When you feel the burn and the the void and the the chasm, what do you do? You just lean into the love of God. You just come back to the cross, right? You come back to the reality that God loves you and only Jesus can fill that void, right? Only Jesus can take away that, that ache. And in the meantime, what you and I have to do is we walk by faith and we struggle to believe some days. And other days we're cruising, but some days we struggle to believe, but we come back to it time and time again because it's in the struggle and it's in the believing and it's in the surrendering and it's in the trusting and the serving that God forms his beautiful community. Because you know why? We're doing it together. God is glorified and we are filled up to overflowing because of what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. We're amazed to think that you were slain from the foundation of the world. We're amazed that you gave up your glory in heaven so that we could know it. And be filled with it. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the glory of heaven. Help us look past to the fleeting glory that this world offers. And God, I ask that you would renew our love for you, that you would renew our love for one another. That we can acknowledge it's not about us. You're the hero of the story. We live for you. We work for you. We serve you. And we work and serve and love one another. So God, may your love be the mark of our fellowship here. May our church be a beautiful community. Start in us, God. And may it work its way out in our homes, in our marriages, where we work, where we go to school, where we play sport, whatever it is. God, may we just live a life of love. Lord, it's really what the world needs right now. So thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for filling the void. In Jesus' name, amen.